15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, once again, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 226. My name is Andrew Dunkley, and joining me as always is the good professor, Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> um, I'm delighted to be thought of as good. <laughs> uh, it's always good to be good. Yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes people think I'm rubbish. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I don't, to don't believe that for one moment. And I know that at least three people who listen to our podcast feel the same. Now, today, we're going to be uh, talking about a couple of stories that are big in uh, astronomical news this week, uh, one that they've been teasing us about and finally announced, and that is that there might be more water on the moon than we first thought. And while we're on the moon, we're going to talk about that uh, collaboration between NASA and Nokia to put a 4G network, a mobile phone network on the moon. Uh, they're deadly serious about it, but uh, radio astronomers are not too thrilled. And we're going to revisit, as promised, the OSIRIS-REx mission, which uh, successfully bounced off asteroid Bennu, kicked up the dust, collected some samples, and looks like they might have got too much because they can't get the lid on. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see what's happening there. And a couple of really interesting questions, one about the use of the sun as a gravitational lens, and another... Uh, as to why, after the summer solstice in the southern hemisphere, uh, the uh, sun still continues to set later, which is uh, a little bit of a confusing anomaly. We'll explain all of that and much, much more today on Space Nuts. Now, Fred, you um, you were on a bit of a road trip last week, were you not? Indeed, yes, I was down in the south of the state. We visited the uh, the sites of Canberra, the astronomical sites of Canberra, which included uh, Mount Stromlo Observatory. Uh, had a look at some of the uh, the sad remains of telescopes after the fire that went through there in two thousand and three. Uh, but also um, mm. spoke to our group about what's going on there now, which is great stuff. Uh, then we went to Tidbinbilla to the tracking station. Uh, which is part of the NASA Deep Space Network, uh, along with Goldstone and Madrid. Uh, Tidbinbilla provides the, um, you know, the coverage for deep space vehicles uh, at our longitude. Uh, and they've got some very impressive dishes there, including um, three new ones, which work in a slightly different way from the, the old ones. But what, one thing that was a highlight of our visit, and I might give a shout out to Glenn Nagel, who's a good friend and um, somebody who is actually head of communications at Tidbinbilla, and that's uh, communications and outreach. Uh, he gave up his Sunday uh, for us um, a week ago last Sunday to to give us uh, the full tour, which was brilliant. Uh, uh, the um, the highlight of the tour for so many people uh, was the old Honeysuckle Creek dish, which was moved to Tidbinbilla. It doesn't operate anymore, but that was the one that got the first signals from Apollo 11 uh, when uh, the astronauts walked on the moon. Uh, despite what the movie says, uh, it was Honeysuckle Creek first <laughs> and then the dish. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I think uh, yeah, people in the know know that, but uh, yeah, they certainly portrayed it as, uh, as the Parkes Radio Telescope, and it was instrumental in getting signals out as well. So... Yeah. Uh, Australia played a very big part in the Apollo 11 uh, landings and 
Uh, yeah, fantastic. Don't you love, Fred, the Australian names, Tidbin Biller yes, and uh, <laughs> some of the, some of the uh, Aboriginal names to get attached to things? Um, where I live in Dubbo, well, the, the word Dubbo is supposed to be, and it, I, I think they've always had trouble really confirming this, but it's supposed to mean red earth in the Wingawarra language, uh, uh, in, the, in the local Aboriginal language, uh, red earth because this region is red soil yep. uh, until you get further out west when it turns black and gets very sticky when it rains. Yep. Uh, we have some really amazing street names in Dubbo too, Fred. We've got uh, Winjawarra Street, uh, which I believe, uh, I, I'm just trying to remember the meaning of it. We've got another one called Wylandra. Now, I think that means swamp. And uh, we've got another one called uh, Bulch Street. They're all Aboriginal words from the local co uh, culture, the Wiradjuri language. So, um, yeah, they've been uh, used here. And, and a lot of our street signs are made up with um, local Aboriginal art as well. So, um, you know, capturing the local culture, I think it's terrific. Yeah. So when, when I lived in Coonabarabran, of course, that too is uh, it's a Gomorrah word. Uh, do you know what it means, Coonabarabran? I do not, but I'm going to think it's something to do with mountains. It's it's uh, it's even more appropriate than that. It's inquisitive person. Oh, okay. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that is perfect for uh, astronomy, for isn't it? To be there, isn't it? It's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah good Love it. So, so just continuing the story, we then um, we then uh, spent some time in the snowy mountains, and there was still a little bit of snow, and then down to the coast where we. Uh, had some saw things that I've never seen before. Some extraordinary places down in Eden, and uh, finally up to Batemans Bay. Uh, parts of parts of oh. worlds that I've never explored before. And the best thing was, yeah, yeah. despite the fact that the Bureau of Meteorology forecast doom and gloom weather conditions for the whole week, it was perfectly fine the whole time. It was great. <laughs> yeah, well, they got them up north instead, and I'm very sad to say that uh, we were talking about the cropping around here recently and how there's just crops as far as the eye can see, and they just needed a couple of weeks of dry weather to get the crops in. That's right. Sadly, a couple of areas have been absolutely decimated by hailstorms, so that's very, very sad news indeed. So uh, hopefully they can get those crops off because they desperately need a good season. We haven't had one for three or four years. Let's get on to our first topic, Fred. I mean, I could talk about Australian history and information for ages. Uh, the hidden pockets of water that may exist on the moon. This is a story that's uh, finally, uh, they, they were teasing us for uh, a good week or so leading up to this, but NASA has made the announcement that there might be a lot more water there than they first thought. That's right, and it, it, the, the main there, there are actually two discoveries involved with this. Um, of which one is confirmation? <clears throat> excuse me, that the infrared signal that we see uh, when you use infrared telescopes to look at the moon that that infrared signal comes actually from water, because earlier results uh, dating from about two thousand and nine were ambiguous. It could have been either H2O, water, or the OH radical, the hydroxyl radical, which in some ways is a form of water. It's a combination of hydrogen and oxygen, but it's not water as we know it. Uh, so um, the signal that was detected back in 2009 could have been either. Uh, people assumed it was water, uh, but now it has been confirmed. And it's been confirmed actually by... Uh, a, a fascinating telescope that um, one of my colleagues has used several times. Uh, it's a NASA facility. It is a telescope built into the uh, after section 
of a 747SP, the old special performance 747s. This is probably quite an elderly aircraft, but it's been modified uh, to have a large telescope uh, poking through um, a huge hole in the back. It's probably... Oh, yes, I know the one. Yeah. yeah several metres in diameter, uh, so in, in, in square. Um, in fact, it's a one point... Sorry, it's a 2.4 metre telescope. You know, it's a 100-inch telescope that they've got mounted in the back of this 747. Um, the uh, aircraft is called SOFIA, which is the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Lovely acronym. Uh, and it flies from time to time to make observations, usually at heights in the region of 45,000 feet. You know, you're up there in the, uh, above all the moisture, virtually all the moisture in the Earth's atmosphere, um, which is where you can make these fine uh, mid-infrared observations. And so it was Sophia observations that were uh, used by astronomers, um, I think based in the University of Hawaii, uh, to detect this infrared signal that is categorically from H2O rather than OH. So we know that it is water that's there. Um, now, the, the, the extraordinary thing is that um, th that has that work has been done sort of in conjunction or certainly parallel with work that uh, has been carried out by scientists, uh, I think the University of Cor Cor Colorado, Colorado, I beg your pardon if I remember rightly. Colorado is the next state across. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's uh, uh, Paul Hain of the University of Colorado who's led this paper, um, which is – so what they've done is looked at the areas of the moon that are in permanent shadow because that's where we think this water is mostly concentrated as ice. Uh, although it's possible there might be liquid water, not of course not open to the uh, um, you know to the emptiness of space, probably trapped inside minerals, maybe even mineral glasses. Uh, it, it sounds bizarre, but that sort of thing can happen when meteorites impact uh, the surface of the moon. So you might have liquid water trapped in tiny um, vials of, of volcanic or, or um, meteoroidal glass. Uh, anyway, um, the, the, probably the bulk of it will be in the form of ice, either bound up with the soil, um, you know, the soil grains, or maybe even certainly in the base of some of the bigger craters that never see sunlight, uh, maybe even if sh as, as sheets of ice, because um, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, the NASA spacecraft that orbits the moon, still active, uh, has detected radar signals or radar returns from those uh, very deep polar craters that suggest that what you're looking at is a surface that's basically shiny, uh, very, very smooth and shiny, so maybe mm. sheets of ice. Um, and the reason why that ice is stable is because, as I said, these... Um, these crater floors never see uh, the light of day. They never see the sun. The temperature, uh, because of that, can get as low as minus 250 degrees Celsius. Um, you might want to convert that into Fahrenheit, but I'm not going to do it in my head. Uh, minus 250 degrees Celsius, that's, you know, 30 degrees or so, to, um, 20 or 30 degrees above absolute zero. It's very, very cold. And so the ice is essentially stable it's just like a rocky surface um the uh so that's that's where perhaps the bulk of this water is but this other paper this paul hayne paper et al from the university of colorado what they've done 
uh, as I was about to say, they've they've looked at what they call cold traps, uh, a place that is in permanent shadow. And it doesn't have to be in the floor of a crater. They're all in the in the polar regions of the sun, uh, sorry, of the moon. Uh, but they don't have to be in craters because you can imagine a situation where you've got um, a hill or even something smaller like a boulder that casts a permanent shadow where you are never going to see sunlight. And so what they've done is they've they've looked at the surface of the moon, of course, which is very well mapped by uh, things like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and they've um, worked out where these places of permanent shadow are down to a scale of one centimetre. Um, wow. They come to the conclusion that 40,000 square kilometres of the moon's surface is in permanent shadow uh, and contains these cold traps, which range from the floors of craters to something a centimetre across. They reckon there are billions of them, basically. Mm. Um, And what that means, when you combine that with the idea that you've got probably in most of these uh, permanent um, shadow regions, you've probably got the ice because the signal is so strong, uh, then you can calculate how much water there is on the moon. And they're talking somewhere in the region of, well, two to three billion tonnes of water. Good grief. Uh, which is a big resource. And, of course, that is exciting for uh, would-be explorers of the moon because not only is water something that will support habitation, it also is rocket fuel um, because it, yep. you use you know use sunlight to uh, generate electricity to... Um, to electrolyze it so that you've got the, the component hydrogen and oxygen uh, atoms, then you recombine them, uh, that gives you rocket fuel. So there is work already being done on making a business case for uh, the exploration of the moon in terms of uh, of using it as a fuel depot. It's extraordinary. Yes, indeed. And uh, FYI, uh, 418 degrees below zero in Fahrenheit. Thank you for that. That's the number you were looking for. I hope to be. Which is damn cold. Damn cold, that's right. Damn cold, yeah. Actually, the discovery of water on the moon was portrayed in that uh, TV series I was telling you about a couple of weeks ago, For All Mankind, the alternative history series where Russia landed first. They also landed the first female on the moon. The Americans set up a base. Uh, near a crater to try and sort of take the lead in the space race, and they discovered uh, water in a um, in a lava tube in a crater, and uh, water ice, and they um, yeah. So the whole story of establishing a base was built around the discovery of ice. Uh, and we're talking back in the seventies when they supposedly set up a human base on the moon, which, in the alternative. Uh, reality of the of the movie is feasible, but I think uh, would have been in the realms of science fiction in reality. Probably not today, but back then for sure. Yeah, but uh, fascinating st- series. If anyone wants to watch it, it's uh, it's really well done. Highly highly professional, great acting, and and just a, a really fascinating storyline. Uh, and some of the political um, uh, storylines within it are fascinating too, uh, as to who's the president at various times. And um, yeah, I think you'll find it most surprising. I think it's on Apple TV, if I recall. But uh, really enjoyable show. Really, really, just mesmerising. I just loved it. Uh, and hopefully they'll make a second season. 
Um, are we done with that topic, Fred? <laughs> oh, no, actually, we're not because um, uh, aside from water on the moon, uh, they are now looking at putting a 4G mobile phone network or cell network on the moon with the support of Nokia, which has got a few people upset in the astronomical world. Yeah, so it, it sort of almost follows on from what we were just saying. The, um, the, the, it's the Artemis project, <clears throat> NASA's Artemis project, which is aiming to send the first woman and the next man to the moon in 2024. <clears throat> that project uh, is aiming actually at this southern polar region of the moon, so they hopefully will find out for certain what form this ice is in. But part of the project is to build a sort of, um, you know, a, a, a kind of permanent base on the moon, uh, a permanently habit, habited bay, inhabited base, uh, with a view to learning about um, long-term spaceflight, uh, principally with the idea of going to Mars in the next decade. <clears throat> so uh, the, 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 the Artemis program is actually you know, a pretty broad brush thing and envisages um, lunar landers and maybe habitation modules actually sitting permanently on the moon's surface. So what has happened is that NASA has recognised that if you've got um, uh, astronauts wandering around on lunar rovers uh, and things of that sort, trying to find their way uh, with... Um, uh, without the benefit of GPS, um, the the need is for solid communications. And what they've done, what NASA has done, is to basically uh, contract Nokia, the Nokia company, actually the American Nokia company, uh, to develop a cellular, cellular network on the moon. And it's to facilitate... As I said, long-term lunar habitability, providing communications for key aspects such as lunar rovers and navigation, uh, the mm -hmm. lunar 4G network. Uh, so that contract's already been awarded, $14.1 million to develop that network. And uh, the immediate consequence was a lot of very upset radio astronomers because yes. um, radio astronomy uses uh, the most sensitive antennas uh, in the world to look at signals from deep space, which would be basically flooded out by the, um, you know, by the uh, Nokia uh, at, uh, um, cell net at specific frequencies. That this is one thing that we have to be clear about. It's not, you know, it's not like flooding uh, 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 something on the ground with white light where you've got every frequency represented. These communications frequencies are quite specific, uh, but at least one of them, and it's certainly one that the Starlink network is using, uh, is very close to a radio astronomy band of interest, and it's of interest because it's where a lot of organic molecules actually emit their radio waves deep in space, uh, precursors for life, things of that sort, which, of course, radio astronomers are really interested in. And if we're going to be flooded out in those wave bands by uh, communications either from uh, constellations of spacecraft above the Earth or by uh, radio, um, uh, phone networks on the moon, um, we, we are struggling. We're going to be struggling. And I think radio astronomers are going to have to be working with the communications people 
to try and mitigate the consequences of all this. It's already happening, in yeah. fact, certainly with SpaceX. Uh, I'm sure radio astronomers are talking to Nokia as well about what the lunar, uh, you know, the lunar proposal might look like. Yeah, I hope they can come to some sort of a agreement or understanding. It would be a, a, a terrible thing to have basically an arm cut off by radio signals um, from you know satellites and and a, a lunar 4G network and um, lose that connectivity with the potential of discovery. I think that would be a a really big. A giant leap backwards. Uh, the big question from me, though, Fred, is with this 4G network on the moon, will the astronauts be able to phone home? <laughs> Probably. <clears throat> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had to ask. Someone had to ask. Somebody has to ask whether they can phone home, except they're not yes. in their 80s. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, before we get on to our next topic, I, I've got some exciting news, Fred. I'm a little bit um, thrilled. Uh, as you know, I, I released earlier this year a um, another science fiction novel called The Tyrannian Enigma, and I decided after much um, pressure or several requests, let's call it that, to put it into audio form, which took me a long time. Uh, but it finally uh, got released and is out there on Google Books and Apple uh, Audio. I am very pleased to be able to say that it's now on Audible. Uh, a lot of people use Audible, which is an Amazon company, to uh, download their books, and uh, a few people have been waiting uh, for me to be able to say that it's on Audible, and yes, it is. So it's on audible.com. It's also available in Australia on audible.com.au. So if you'd like to download the audio edition of the Tyrannian Enigma, uh, it is now available on just about every uh, audible audio, audio book platform, but now on audible.com and audible.com.au. I'm very excited about that. It's and, great, uh, Andrew, and congratulations for that. Um, thank you. Getting on Audible is... Yeah. Um, is a big coup. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, uh, and it's damn hard work. I mean, I know I've been in radio for a long time, and doing voice work goes with the goes with the gig. But recording an audio book is a completely different animal, and it really can uh, be quite taxing. And I think I've mentioned before that you, you, it takes when you're doing it by yourself and you haven't got the backing of a studio or a producer or an editor or all that. Um, you've really got to do everything yourself, which I did in this spot where I'm sitting on this microphone that I'm talking to you on. So you've got to bring quality into play and try and keep it all at the same standard, even though you're recording segments weeks and weeks and weeks apart. But then you've got to watch out for getting a cold and your voice changing or losing your voice. Or so so there are all sorts of – yeah, and hay fever because it can all change. Um, there's a lot of pitfalls, but uh, the, the big struggle I had, and I didn't bother to fix it, was um, as I sort of got into the story and was recording a segment weeks after recording another segment, I couldn't remember what voice I used for the character. <laughs> so I thought, no, nah, blow it. I'll just, I'll just go with something else and hope that it's the same. But, um, yeah, I just left it. And, I, and actually I, um, I, I had a bit of feedback from someone who listened to it and they, um, they loved it. And I said, yeah, I was a bit worried about the character voices. And they went, oh, we didn't notice. So... That's good. 
<laughs> Probably shouldn't have mentioned it, but anyway. Um, it's great fun, but being someone who hates editing, it that, that's the hard slog. The editing takes longer than actually reading a, a chapter yeah. and recording it, yeah. unless you're really good at reading and don't make mistakes, but that's very un. Very unlikely for most people, even the best in the business. Now, Fred, let's get on to the OSIRIS-REx mission. Uh, this was a mission where we uh, we sent the OSIRIS-REx probe to the asteroid Bennu, which um, it sort of hung around looking at for a good long while, up until last week when they decided, okay, we're going to land on this thing and take a sample. Well, it was um, a success uh, until it maybe wasn't. We're, 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 we've... Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. Um, hopefully not a long-term problem, hope, hopefully solvable. But, um, yeah, I think I think the bottom line is they were too successful. Would yeah, that be a, like a way that. of describing it? So um, just to recap, the, um, the, the, the device that they use, uh, it's, so the spacecraft itself approaches the surface of, of asteroid Bennu, or did this last week, in fact, uh, with a kind of <clears throat> almost like a miniature backhoe arm stretched out, which contains a, a device on the end, which is called TAGSAM. And TAGSAM is an acronym for Touch and Go Sample Acquisition Mechanism. It's great. I love it. I don't, I don't mind that one. No, I don't mind that one at all. Yeah, it's got that sort of feeling of, you know, just touching the surface to it, hasn't it? TAGSAM. Yeah, TAG. Yeah. TAG, like the game. Mm. Exactly. So, um, so this is so sort of shaped like a you know a pan, uh, which collects the the sample, and then there apparently is um, uh, is a mylar flap, which is meant to seal shut once the sample has been collected. But they were so successful with the tag sum that um, some of the some of the bigger bits of soil and dirt that didn't go through the flap properly have wedged it open. Uh, <laughs> no. You know, they've, they've, been, they've, they've collected more than they expected to. And that essentially uh, means that, um, first of all, they, they had the poss possibility of collecting, if they didn't feel they'd got enough, they had the possibility of collecting another sample in January, I think the 11th of January. But that, I think, has now been ditched because they feel they've got enough. Uh, in fact, as, as the NASA bulletin says, because the first sample collection event was so successful, NASA's science mission directorate has given the mission team the go-ahead to expedite sample stowage. In, originally scheduled for the 2nd of November, uh, in the spacecraft sample return capsule to minimise further sample loss. So there's this separate capsule, the SRC, the sample return capsule, uh, which they've got to stow the sample in. And <laughs> one, there's a quote from uh, Dante Loretta, who's the principal investigator uh, for OSIRIS-REx, University of Arizona. The abundance of material we collected from Bennu made it possible to expedite our decision to stow. This team is now working around the clock to accelerate the stowage timeline so we can protect as much of the, this material as possible for return to Earth. Now, this is where it gets tricky because um, what was expected to happen with this stowage procedure was that um, uh, 
Osiris Rex would run autonomously through a sequence of events. Uh, and so what they're doing now uh, is saying, no, we don't want that to happen. We want this to be done so carefully, uh, carefully enough that we don't lose soil to space. So they're going to do it all by hand. Uh, in other words, send a command, watch what happens, uh, and, uh, and then send the next command, watch what happens. The problem is you've got a 37-minute delay between sending the command and knowing what it's done because the uh, signal travel time at the moment between Earth and the spacecraft is 18.5 minutes. So each step means that you've got to wait for 37 minutes while you take the step and then wait to see what's happened uh, in, in, the, um, in the consequences. It's going to be very, very painful. I think, Andrew... This is probably happening as we speak because it's scheduled for the 27th of October US time. Uh, okay. uh, we are the following day. So I think it's happening now. So uh, by the time this, um, this podcast goes to air, the outcome might be known already. Oh, drat, we've lost it all. No, I'm sure it won't be that. <laughs> oh, I hope not. But, uh, yeah, it's um, – in terms of uh, glitches when it comes to space missions, this is not the worst thing that's ever happened no, that's uh, right. on a visit to another world or another object. But, uh, you know, there's been the famous cases of lens caps getting stuck on by heat and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But uh, it sounds like they've got a solution. And when, whenever you watch uh, documentaries or movies about problems in space, it's always about working the problem. And they obviously have got an idea on how to deal with this. They're just going to have to be very careful with the execution. That's correct, exactly, which is why they're doing it one step at a time. Right. Well, we might have a follow-up to that yet again next week, so we'll, we'll keep a, a close eye on the OSIRIS-REx mission, uh, which I think will only be the second time that um, a probe has brought back matter from a uh, an asteroid. I think the Japanese have done it once um, before. Well, they've done it once already, and there's one other Japanese one on, on the way back, uh, which will come down at ah, okay. here in Australia, in fact, in December, I think. So, right. Yeah. So this will be the third time, third time. in that case. Mm. Very good. Well, the more we get, the more we learn. That's yes. what it's all about. Oh. This is... <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, anything we, any samples like this that we can get back, uh, absolutely invaluable scientifically. Indeed. Totally agree. This is the Space Nuts Podcast, episode 226 with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com vpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. Space Nuts. A big shout-out to our patrons. Uh, no matter how you support us, we appreciate it. Uh, the patreon.com slash space nuts page is an option where you can choose as little or as much as you wish to contribute once a month 
totally voluntarily. If you'd like to become a patron, Space Nuts is on patreon.com slash Space Nuts. There's also the option to go through uh, Supercast, and there's all sorts of packages available through Supercast. Uh, again, not expensive, but you can choose whichever, uh, but it also gives you access to multiple podcasts so you can you can buy a package if you want to do it that way, uh, or you can just make a straight donation. I think uh, PayPal is now an option if you want to uh, do it that way. And as I say all the time, this is not a requirement. It's not uh, something we uh, want you to absolutely do as a must. It's totally voluntarily and we, uh, vol- voluntary, and we would not force you to do that. We'll never ever uh, switch it to a pay-only service. So, uh, it, you know, we just appreciate those people who have come to us and said we want to give you something for the work you do. That's how you do it. Uh, all the details are on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Now, Fred, let's um, tackle a couple of questions. This one I know you particularly love. This comes from Ed Manson in Sydney. Uh, I've always been intrigued as to why the longest day of the year doesn't have the latest sunset time of the year. Uh, In Sydney, the longest day is the 21st of December, but the sunset time continues to get later in the evening each day for some time after this. I haven't ever really been able to conceptualise why this is so. Perhaps Fred could help uh, edify me such that I can demonstrate my superior knowledge to my old man who has always asked this question, uh, who's also asked this question before. Thanks. Now, I I do recall we have talked about this, I think, on the radio years and years ago. Uh, It is a a strange thing because after the, uh, the longest day, uh, the summer solstice in the southern hemisphere. Uh, it would be natural to assume that the days start to get shorter after that, and they do, but the sunset continues to happen later, and that's where he's confused. Yeah, it, 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 look, it's, it is a great question, and it's um, you're quite right. It's one one of those that um, I've always relished since I first answered it actually for an, um, a newsletter when I worked for Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac Office at the Royal Greenwich <laughs> Observatory back in the 1970s, early 1970s. So, um, the, uh, and, and I, I might actually just do a plug because I cover this question in my book, Why is Uranus Upside Down? Uh, and Other Questions About the Universe, which was published actually quite some time ago, back in 2007. Uh, but it's um, 150 questions that people asked us on the radio, and this is one of them. Why doesn't the earliest, uh, why doesn't for the, the, the longest day uh, coincide with the earliest sunrise and the latest sunset? Uh, it actually, in the book's couch the other way, it's about the shortest day because the same thing happens. So let me give you the figures. Uh, okay, for the summer solstice, uh, exactly um, as, uh, as as Ed mentions, uh, only the, I'm doing this for, I'm reading it from the book, so it's for 2007. So the dates are just very slightly different, but basically mm-hmm. it amounts to the same thing. In summer, the earliest sunrise is on the 6th of December, and this is in Sydney again. 6th of December is the earliest sunrise. So after that, the sunrises start getting later. And, you know, you would think, oh, well, the days are getting shorter, but they're not. (laughs) They're getting longer. And they're getting longer until the solstice, which is on the 22nd of December, uh, and then start getting shorter, as you said, 
But the latest sunset is actually not until the 7th of January, the, the following year. Um, so there's this skewing. The, 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 the earliest sunrise is 6th is of December. The shortest, sorry, the longest day is the 22nd of December. And the latest sunset isn't the, until the 7th of January. And you'd expect intuitively all those things to be on the same date. You'd expect them all to be on the 22nd of December, but they're not. And it's actually um, a, a slightly complex reason, but it is all about the fact that uh, the sun as a timekeeper is not very good. Uh, and we know that because if you have a sundial, uh, the time that you record with the sundial is not the same as your clock time. Uh, and it varies throughout the year. It, it averages out to be the same over a year, but uh, there are times in the year when the clock is running ahead of the sundial, times of the year when the clock is running behind the sundial. And um, the difference between them is something that for centuries has been called the equation of time. And you can plot a graph of the equation of time. In fact, uh, anybody who's listening to this, if anybody ever does, uh, if you check out on the web and you can see, you'll be able to see, just Google the equation of time, you'll be able to see the way it varies throughout the year. That equation of time is the difference between uh, clock time and sundial time. And it comes about because the Earth's orbit first of all, is not circular. Uh, the Earth's orbit's elliptical. We are closest to the sun on the 3rd of January um, and um, it, furthest away on about the 3rd of July. So it's, uh, it's a, 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 an elliptical orbit. That means that the, the Earth's progression around its orbit is not at a constant speed. And that, combined with the fact that the Earth's, or the Earth's axis is tilted with respect to the perpendicular to the Earth's orbit, that is what produces the equation of time. It's what gives you this funny little graph uh, that shows uh, the difference between clock time and sundial time. Now, okay, how does that relate to the solstice? Um, probably the easiest way for me to deal with this is to read it out of the book, <laughs> since I wrote the book myself. You wrote it, Fred, so they're your words. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So if you th you can think about um, the – actually, I might just – yeah, let me just read, read what I've said. So it, sa it says, why don't these two billion why – why doesn't this bewildering set of dates coincide? That's what the ones we've just given. The reason has to do with the sun's bizarre behavior in running fast and slow – uh, uh, as described earlier in the book, you'll have to read that. It's the good old equation of time again. At certain times of the year, the interval between noons on successive days is slightly greater than 24 hours of clock time. And at other times of the year, uh, they are slightly less. The difference is cancelling one another out over the whole year. Near the southern summer solstice, the time between successive noons is 30 seconds less than 24 hours. So that's the, the crucial part of this. Uh, it's a big chunk of time. It, it's a lot of time, yeah. So it's, it's when the equation of time is at its extreme. Uh, and that difference, and so the, the, here's the crucial point, that difference of uh, 30 seconds per day is greater 
than the difference between the sunrise and sunset times on, on successive days. And so the equation of time becomes the dominant effect, the fact that that's changing more rapidly than your sunrise and sunset times are. And the result of that is to stagger the dates uh, of the earliest uh, or latest sunrise and sunset times and the solstices. But it works at both solstices. It's actually more pronounced in December than in June because of the larger discrepancy between the solar day and 24 hours of clock time. And here's another thing. It's less pronounced at higher latitudes. So it was something I never noticed when I lived in the UK at latitude 55 or so, whereas at, down here in Australia at latitude uh, 30, 33 or 34 in Sydney, you're at about 31 and a, uh, you're about 32, I think, in, um, in uh, uh, Dubbo. Um, it's, it, the, you get this greater daily change in the sunrise and sunset times. And, and this is the bottom line. Um, if you were to plot tables of sunrise and sunset times based on sundial time, rather than clock time, the effect would disappear altogether. Um, and it, so it's all about the fact that the sun, as it moves, apparently moves around our skies, uh, as you know, as seen with a sundial, is not a good timekeeper. So if we never invented the clock, we wouldn't have noticed. Yes, that's right. If we'd always relied on sundials, we wouldn't have noticed. Um, but, but sundials are not good timekeepers. So it was really with the mechanical clock, uh, the invention of the mechanical clock, that the, uh, the idea of, um, uh, of the equation of time emerged. It's a That's complicated thing, isn't it? It's not easy. Oh, no, yeah, my brain hurts. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, my brain hurts just trying to... Yeah, that's right. I was listening as carefully as possible to try and get my head around it, but if you asked me to explain it right now, I'd, I'd collapse. And, uh, Ed, good luck explaining it to your dad. Well, the best and, thing that Ed can do is give him a copy of Why Is Your Angels Upside Down for Christmas because <laughs> it's still in press. <laughs> There's the sales pitch. There you go. <laughs> um, that's a great question. I always, uh, it's a, as you spoke and explained all that, uh, my thought was, well, you know, wouldn't a sundial always be seven minutes behind, um, uh, or eight minutes because of the travelling time of light? But uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, sundials don't take that into account at all. Um, people no. didn't know when they first invented sundials; they had no idea that the sun sunlight takes eight minutes to get here. Yeah, it's all sorts of things to consider. But uh, thanks for the question, Ed. That uh, It's an absolute ripper and um, a much more complex answer than I think you might have been anticipating. Uh, now let's move on to our next question, and it comes from Brock Pedersen. Uh, now, uh, Brock dropped an audio uh, question down, but we, we haven't been able to collect those. So uh, he very, very thoughtfully sent it to us in text just in case. And he said, on a recent episode of Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson, he says that we could set up a telescope in space that uses the space curvature of the sun uh, as a lens to view distant, far-off locations with extreme magnification. He um, uh, points to the question why we haven't done this yet um, as we have the technology. Uh, do you know why we aren't doing this? And do you know why? Uh, what kind of resolving power uh, we would get? Uh, could we look at planets orbiting stars in the Andromeda 
uh, Galaxy, for example. Uh, great podcast, you two, and I uh, hope it goes forever. P.S. Fred, are you ever going to be able to guest on Stargazing Live again? Loved seeing you on it last time, Brock Pedersen. I think I saw you on it last time too, Fred. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, hopefully, when Stargazing Live returns, as I hope it will do eventually, um, um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, the, the last time uh, Stargazing Live was on, I couldn't be there because I was actually leading an eclipse tour in uh, in South America. That was last year. So that's why really? I couldn't make it. I couldn't um, tell the eclipse to wait because I wanted to be on Stargazing Live. Uh, it just didn't work that way. Um, Refer to previous answer to previous question, question in regard to wait. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, so um, this is it's interesting, and it's certainly an idea that has been discussed before. Um, why hasn't this done, been done yet? Well, because it doesn't work. <laughs> um, not, not, as, not as neatly and tidily as that um, suggestion from Neil deGrasse Tyson comes about. I haven't actually seen the episode of, of Cosmos. The problem is, um, okay, you have a gravitating body like the, like the sun. And first of all, it will be a lot easier to do this with the Earth than the sun because the sun is a luminous object. And so if you're trying to, you know, if, if you're trying to um, use the its space curvature uh, to, to, to bend the light from distant objects, um, you first of all have to get rid of the light of the sun. Uh, one way to do that is by means of an eclipse, and that's actually how relativity was first uh, confirmed in 1919 by a total eclipse of the sun on, I think, the 24th of May, if I remember rightly. Um, and so that was, in a, in a sense, doing what this question is talking about. They, they looked at the way the images of stars were moved away from the disk of the sun by the, gra the gravitational curvature of the space around the sun. But the problem with that, well, let's, okay, so let's get rid of the sun because that's a terrible idea. The sun's too luminous, but you might think about doing it with the earth. Um, so, uh, or even the moon, actually, you, the moon would distort space to some level that would let you uh, actually form an image a long, long way from the moon, along the axis between the moon and the object that you're looking at, trying to, to study. But the difficulty is that it's not a lens as we think of it. It's actually, um, if, you, if you think of a lens in a telescope, it's a bit like a spectacle lens. It's, um, you know, usually convex in the middle, uh, sorry, thicker in the middle of the, than at the edge to make it convex. That's the basic form of a telescope lens. Uh, a lens that would mimic the uh, gravitational distortion of the sun is a different shape. And in fact, it's more or less the shape of the bottom of a wine glass. Um, somewhere I've got a broken off bottom of the wine glass, which actually simulates very well what uh, the imaging properties of an object in space is. And it doesn't form an image of the kind that you can examine uh, microscopically to look at details like planets orbiting stars in the Andromeda galaxy. What you get is what's, uh, what is called, um, what is it called? I've forgotten the name, that's ridiculous. It'll come to me in a minute, uh, a, piece, a piece of optical terminology, uh, where you've basically the, the, the light forms uh, a cusp. Uh, it, um, gosh, I can't remember the name. It's on the tip of my tongue. Never mind. It doesn't matter. Um, to me all the time, Freddie. Sorry, say again, Andrew. 
happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, I've got it now. It, co- it forms a caustic. The technical name is a caustic curve image. And that is not the kind of image that you can magnify with, you know, the kind of equipment you need to look at planets around other stars. There might be ways that you could do, that you could modify that, correcting lenses, but um, it it actually becomes an engineering uh, challenge, which is kind of, you know, on a hiding to nothing because the more engineering you do to try and give yourself a proper image from the caustic image that you get, uh, that you would get, uh, is actually quite serious stuff. And in the end, it's a lot better to use a conventional telescope <laughs> like, um, you know, the the extremely large telescopes that are on the horizon at the moment where you can control the imaging properties at first hand. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because I want to point out one of the other issues with trying to use a natural object as a as a, a, a as a telescope, uh, and that is that uh, you've got to be you know you've got to get the your spacecraft to detect the image in the same direction or opposite the Earth or whatever you look you're using as your gravitational lens as the target that you're looking at. So you, you've got all the orbital dynamics of that to, to cope with as well. And it, it just basically amounts to being a non-starter. Uh, so um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson positing the question why we haven't done it yet um, has a lot of very sensible answers. And if you want, you know, send him to me, I'll tell him why we haven't done it yet, because we don't have the technology. Uh, absolutely not. Um, just, Bottom line. And just one other aside on this um, is that, yes, we do use this phenomenon for, uh, you know, the, the um, magnification of very distant galaxies. We use it all the time. You and I have spoken about it, where you've got a cluster of galaxies and its uh, gravitational distortion lets you see all these strangely curved images, which are caustics, exactly as I've described, of much more distant galaxies. And you can actually, at some level, reconstruct those images uh, to, to give you some sort of idea of what's going on. We, we actually had a, I think we talked about this with a, with a, a ring of light, a, an Einstein ring that was reconstructed into an image of its proper galaxy. Um, we've, we've done that already. But this is in situations which are very different from using the sun or a planet as a telescope that you can point around the sky. They're just taking advantage of a, of a natural alignment. Uh, the technology does exist to reconstruct the images, but uh, it's at very poor re- resolution um, because the you know the difficulties are quite high. So going back to what I was just saying, uh, with the extremely large telescopes, and in particular the European one, the ELT, uh, which will have a mirror 39 meters in diameter, that will have the resolving power. Uh, to see the planets of stars in the Andromeda galaxy. It's it's phenomenal, the level mm. of resolution that you will get with that. Now, it's a very difficult problem to do that because um, you've got to you blot out the light of the star before you can see a planet. But uh, the, uh, you know, the extreme resolutions that we will get with these ELTs, uh, that will actually, you know, let us explore uh, the stellar population of, of galaxies like Andromeda uh, at close at close hand. At least it will if there's one in the Northern Hemisphere. The, the TMT, the 30-metre telescope, is the Northern Hemisphere 
uh, equivalent of the uh, of the uh, the European Southern Observatory's one down in Chile, the ELT, uh, that sadly held up at the moment because of issues with the location on the summit of Mount Achaea, uh, which uh, is all to do with the traditional owners. And it's a very, very difficult problem, much more difficult than imaging stars in different galaxies, uh, planets in different galaxies. It's a, you know, it's a problem that really has no easy answers. And it might result in that telescope being built elsewhere, perhaps on, La pa- on the island of La Palma in the Canary Islands, which is um, not quite as good a site as Mauna Kea, but still pretty good. I've got off the track there, um, but um, regular telescopes have got a lot to offer. Uh, and, um, you know, the square kilometre array, likewise in the radio spectrum, will have very fine resolving power because its antennas are spread over a large area. Um, So we don't need to worry too much about looking at gravitational lenses. They're a pain to deal with. Uh, And once in a while we get a fortunate uh, juxtaposition that lets us see galaxies behind a, uh, a, a cluster of galaxies and lets us get decent results from it. But it's not something I think you could use as a, a routine uh, me- method of observing. There you go. That's a long, uh, a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, but a good question and well worth asking. Brock, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And uh, thank you to everyone who sends in uh, questions. We're starting to pile them up again. Uh, But, of course, as always, if you would like to send in a question, go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com. You can send it the traditional way through our contact portal or you can click on the AMA tab and record your question. Just tell us who you are, where you're from, and ask your question. As long as you've got a microphone attached to your device that operates, uh, we will um, we will receive it, and more than happy to uh, to uh, go through them and pick and choose which ones uh, get uh, put on the air. We can't do them all these days; just uh, too many. Although we had a little drought, but that's uh, that's certainly not the case now. But um, keep them coming. That's what we like. Fred, that brings us to the end of um, uh, what turned out to be a lengthy episode, but uh, very, very good indeed. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a great pleasure. It has uh, actually turned out to be lengthy, hasn't it? That's good. Well, never mind. It's all good stuff. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's all right. It's Andrew for... Um, it's because we're approaching the summer solstice and not, you know, we... That we, you know, we, the, the length of our episodes is actually longer than they appear. <laughs> That's... That's what's happening. We should be doing it by sundial and not by this little number. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, that's how I tell the time on radio, by the way. Uh, thank you, Fred. We'll, we'll catch you again next time. Sounds great. See you soon. Take care, Andrew. See you, Fred. Fred Watson, astronomer at large here on the Space Nuts podcast. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening. Tell your friends, say hi to your mum for me, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Gin joints in all the towns in all the world. She walks into mine. Welcome to a new podcast for the movie lover in all of us. Hi, Richard Kuypers here, host of the Classic Film Club. I'm a film critic for the international trade paper Variety, a documentary filmmaker, and I program the Freak Me Out sidebar at Sydney Film Festival. 
Apart from all that, I've been a film fanatic all my life. I'm especially interested in looking at old movie classics through modern eyes and shining a light on lesser-known treasures from the past 125 years of cinema. The Classic Film Club, available via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. For more details, join our Facebook group. Just search for the Classic Film Club podcast group or visit our website at theclassicfilmclub.com. The Classic Film Club, new from Bytes.com.